Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Remember the Hobby Lobby case? The owner of the giant craft company had illegally bought thousands of ancient artifacts from Iraq. Now those artifacts have been returned. Coming up, we'll speak to Leila Amadilo. Amina Dole, an art and cultural heritage lawyer who served as a legal expert on cultural heritage for federal prosecutors working on the Hobby Lobby case. How common are antiquities pilfered from their native lands and why? We'll learn more. That's later. First, Sunday was a historic day in Tunisia. There were 2,000 candidate lists running for municipal seats, a first in the North African country. The elections are significant for a number of reasons. Coming up, we'll find out why Tunisia, which sparked the Arab Spring movement, has succeeded when other countries who've been swept up in revolutions have not. You can join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, joining me by Skype from Tunis, Tunisia, is Fadil Alariza, independent journalist and researcher who's been covering Tunisia since 2011. Fadil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about uh, these elections on Sunday. Uh, what was the turnout? Well, according to the official numbers from the higher election body, um, it was 33.7%, uh, which is quite striking when you compare it to um, the turnout in the 2014 elections, both for the parliamentary elections and for both ra- rounds of the presidential elections. The turnout in both of those cases was over 60%. Um, but perhaps it's not too surprising when you look um, at sort of the, the levels of uh, disillusionment amongst uh, Tunisians. There's been polling the last couple of years that's shown Tunisians have really uh, 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 lost a lot of faith in, in politicians, but also in political institutions and their ability to really address some of the, their, their most pressing concerns, particularly social and economic concerns. Fadil, can you hear me? There's a very loud sound. This is what happens when we use Skype uh, to to reach our guests. Uh, Are you having trouble also hearing over that screechy noise? Oh, not at all. I can hear you perfectly. (laughs) Well, now the sound has uh, disappeared, but um, I think a lot of our listeners probably weren't able to hear you because it was a a very loud sound behind you. But you were saying that you were saying that turnout is about was about 37 percent, much lower than parliamentary elections a few years ago. So let's back up after uh, the Arab Spring again. um, Let's talk a little bit about what kind of uh, leaders the Tunisians wanted in their country and why this is such a historic moment to have these municipal elections. Yeah, well, uh, just before the, I mean, the revolution happened in 2011, there were a lot of demands. Uh, first and foremost was uh, uh, work, freedom and, and national dignity, which is has a lot of different meanings. But how it really came into practice after the revolution and the fall of what was an authoritarian regime, sort of one party system, um, was that there was a democratic transition. They had a new uh, assembly that was elected in 2011 um, that was supposed to write a new constitution, which they did by 2014. 
um, and they had new elections in 2014. So they had two sets of elections after this revolution. Um, and the real hope was that uh, there would be some decentralization. I mean, that's what's really important about the municipal elections yesterday is that um, uh, before the revolution, there was some really sharp inequalities uh, between regions in Tunisia, particularly between the, the coastal regions, which are, are, are very well developed, a little bit richer and, and better off, and interior regions. So the idea was that there was going to be decentralization to give people in interior regions more say over um, uh, not only more autonomy uh, in terms of how they could spend uh, money and 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 direct uh, development, uh, but also to just to have a sort of carve out more space for them uh, in terms of political rights. Um, but it's taken quite a while to get there. So this is sort of the, the first step. But in terms of actually um, seeing a, a devolution of power, that still is going to take quite a bit of time. Uh, when we were looking, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that there were 2,000 candidate lists. So explain how uh, the elections are set up uh, uh, in uh, Tunisia for these municipal elections and who were the people running? Yes, the, the, the electoral system is a bit uh, complex coming from, uh, from, from a U.S. perspective uh, because you don't, you don't have individual candidates that are running. You actually have individual lists as a whole. Uh, so even if you're an independent who wants to run um, for, 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 the, for the local council, you've got to get together with a, a whole bunch of other people um, who, who, who think like you and set together a list. You have to put forward one person for each of the seats in the council, um, which actually makes it quite hard for independents to get involved in, the, in, in politics. N- nonetheless, it seems that um, uh, early estimates show that independents did quite well, which I think is, is probably a reflection of, of how much uh, people are, are, are sort of upset at the major parties or, 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 or disillusioned with the major parties and their ability to, to, to get things done either at the, uh, the national level or the, or the local level. Uh, we understand that uh, many young people were running, women, uh, even people with disabilities. Um, explain, I guess, the dynamic, the demographics there and the change that uh, these groups are looking for. Sure. They, well, there was uh, I think there was a lot of thought that went into the laws uh, for the elections, uh, uh, mandating the, the, the kinds of um, uh, uh, people that lists would have to put forward, that parties would have to put forward. So there was a, a quota of, of uh, uh, female candidates that needed to be put forward, a quota of um, disabled candidates that had to be uh, put forward um, and, and young people as well. Um, you know, whether that actually translated into um, uh, some of these more uh, marginalized groups in society actually getting representation after the elections is, is probably a little bit less likely, but at least people were thinking about that. And when you look at the, the, the big picture, Tunisia does have uh, quite a bit of representation of women in, in uh, female politicians, for example, at the national level, um, in, in parliament as well. Um, uh, so I, we're seeing steps towards, um, you know, you know, a greater representation, um, but there's still obviously a lot of hurdles uh, to overcome um, for, for groups that feel like they, they've been left out in the past. Fadil Alariza is an independent journalist and researcher who's been covering Tunisia since the 2011 Arab Spring uh, Revolution. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, on Sunday, historic local elections uh, took place in the North African country. He's joining us uh, via Skype from Tunis. Uh, what happens now, uh, Fadil? Uh, so we again heard that uh, turnout was rather low compared to parliamentary elections a few years ago. Um, were there issues with any kind of, of um, polling uh, for people to not be able to vote in certain uh, areas of Tunisia? Are people uh, feeling confident moving forward? There was only one municipality where there was an issue with people being able to get out and vote. 
Um, and that was because there had been a mix up of, of lists. They had actually brought uh, the lists of candidates from from a neighboring municipality. Um, so they're going to actually vote again, apparently. That's what we're hearing today. But otherwise, uh, uh, there were no issues in terms of people who wanted to vote. The real problem was people wanting to vote at all. I think uh, a lot of people were, were quite vocal about saying that, you know, they, they don't really have faith that these elections um, uh, will do anything for them. You know, they feel like they voted uh, in 2011 and 2014, and they've seen... Um, uh, their standard of, of living actually go down. Um, so they, they, there's a there's a real disillusionment with I think the democratic process as a whole, and not just with particular politicians. Um, but we'll, we won't get formal official results um, until a couple of days from now. And then from then on, we're going to have to see the, the local councils actually have to uh, 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 sort themselves out uh, uh, internally. Uh, uh, they're going to have to uh, nominate uh, mayors from amongst their ranks. Uh, so we'll have to see a lot of jockeying between parties uh, uh, themselves at the municipal level to sort of work out who are going to be the new mayors in Tunisia. One of the questions we'll be tackling later on in the show is why uh, democracy is moving forward in Tunisia, but not in other countries that were swept up in the revolutionary movements uh, after 2011. I wanted to bring into the conversation a Connecticut resident with uh, Tunisian ties. Uh, Munji's calling. Uh, Munji, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning. Uh, so tell us about your connection to Tunisia, your reaction to these historic elections. Well, I'm, I was born and raised in Tunisia, specifically in the city of Mata, which uh, uh, yesterday, as many of the other municipalities have uh, witnessed and lived uh, through these elections, it was exciting uh, to follow the campaigns for three weeks. Uh, and then uh, yesterday we were holding our breath as we were monitoring the social media and, and uh, trying to uh, find out the results. And uh, it, it, was, it was an exciting day. It was, it was a happy day, regardless of who wins or loses. Um, we were talking about what we'll uh, be discussing uh, coming up, this question uh, of democracy uh, moving forward in Tunisia. Why do you think that is when you look at the other countries again uh, where uh, we saw the Arab Spring, we saw uh, violence, and right now some of them are, are still in civil war, Munji? Uh, exactly. I mean, when the Arab Spring broke out uh, and it started in Tunisia, I mean, the, the demands of the people were, were uh, centered around two things, which is freedom and dignity. So. Uh, Tunisia was able to deliver uh, on, on the issue of freedom by uh, uh, adopting a new constitution, by holding free and fair elections for the fourth time now, uh, changing the political system, uh, empowering the people, as we see uh, a lot of participation of women and young uh, uh, and the youth, and especially the parties who embraced that kind of progressive uh, uh, tendencies, um, you know, came on top yesterday. And those who were stuck, sticking to the old regime and the old ways, uh, they lost big uh, yesterday, as, as, as I was uh, saying. Mm. Uh, and I think it, it sends a big message to the region that's saying that democracy can work. Um, people can solve their problems around the political table through the ballot box and not through the bullets. Uh, and I hope that also a big message is sent to the West and specifically to the U.S., uh, that supporting democracy, investing in democracy in Tunisia, in a country like Tunisia, pays off. Uh, and hopefully, as it paid off in the political system and changing the political um, and the de democratic institutions, we hope that the economy in Tunisia will be able to deliver as well. And I, and I hope that the Obama, I mean, the Trump administration uh, will will support these tendencies and not and not uh, uh, cut its aid to Tunisia. I mean, I. I just want to bring to an, an important point, uh, seven senators last week at the end of April, including our two senators from Connecticut, Senator Murphy and Senator Blumenthal, 
sent a letter to the Appropriations Committee on the Senate asking them to maintain, at least maintain, the level of aid to Tunisia and not uh, go with the 40% cuts that the Trump administration is suggesting. So I hope that the appropriators will, will do just that. Uh, Fadil, uh, you were able to hear uh, a Connecticut resident uh, who was born in Tunisia with some of his uh, reaction to the elections. Let's talk a little bit uh, before we head to break about uh, the the reasons that Tunisians are frustrated, the reason the economy hasn't rebounded. Um, I understand there's a lot of loans from the international community, uh, austerity measures in place. Can you break it down for us of why the economy hasn't rebounded? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the, the the issues that I've been focusing on recently was the um, the currency devaluation. That's something that the the IMF and Tunisia's other lenders have have really been uh, sort of uh, vocal about in terms of saying that the dinar needs to depreciate. As a result, we've really seen inflation. So, for for example, the the numbers came out just for last month. Inflation was seven point seven percent, and the month before that was seven point six percent. So we're seeing a lot of uh, just the, the the prices, especially of food and transportation. Uh, have been going up uh, uh, quite quite drastically, particularly in the last few months. Um, but you know, even since 2010, 2011, we've seen prices uh, going up. So that that really hits people in, in their pocketbooks. Um, at the same time, we've seen unemployment uh, uh, stay around 15% for the last few years. And when you look at unemployment for young people in particular, it's about 30, 35%. Um, so that sort of explains, I think, why there, there was a little bit less enthusiasm from young people yesterday. I mean, I was at a polling station in downtown Tunis, and, and you didn't see too, too many young people uh, there. And I saw quite a few other photographs from polling stations around the country where you didn't see a lot of uh, young people uh, lining up to vote. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, some of the, the reasons when we're talking about the, uh, the economy that we're also seeing austerity measures, uh, particularly with the new budget law for, for this year that came into effect. We saw price rises. Uh, for some commodities, um, and Tunisia is really dependent on imports, so that's where it hurts them. The fact that uh, if their currency is going down, the the fact that they still have to import a lot of basic consumer goods is just making it more expensive for average people, and and they haven't seen uh, uh, wages really go up, and uh, uh, or employment uh, uh, really take off. And are we seeing a, a lot of young people leaving the country? I was looking at a report by Reuters that said uh, because the economy has been poor for so long, uh, some Tunisians have even uh, attempted to cross uh, into Europe. Is that something that is a reality there? We it is yeah we've we've seen a spike um, uh, this year and 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 last year of people who are trying to 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 go on these very dangerous trips by boat uh, to Italy um, and you know it's it's become so 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 normal for uh, people culturally here the other day I was I was I was buying something at the store someone someone asked the the guy for help with a, a phone card that had gotten wet and his first question was. Uh, you know, was it, oh, your son, was he trying to go to, to Italy? Did he fall in the water that way? I mean, that was a more a more common question than did, did it fall in the sink or did it fall in the toilet? It was, did it fall in the ocean because he was trying to, to cross over to Italy just to give you a sense of, of how common it is. But even when you see more well-off people, I think, uh, you know, there's there's quite a big brain drain of, of, of skilled people like doctors um, and engineers who are saying, you know, we have more hope um, for our lives somewhere else. Um, you know, Tunisia's economy is, is really, we haven't seen it uh, get better for the last several years, and we don't really know when it will start getting better, which is which is quite sad. So it's, uh, uh, you know, I think there's, there's got to be some, from the policy perspective, there's got to be some sort of uh, move to try and stop uh, uh, this brain drain 
because it's a it's it's really a loss of resources for Tunisians who who want to rebuild their country in a sense uh, towards a more maybe democratic Tunisia and more pr- prosperous Tunisia at the same time. And now that the elections are over again, the official results will be coming in. Uh, but do you feel that people uh, living in the inland areas will feel more represented and, and have a, a bigger say in the direction of their government, uh, not uh, centralized in just Tunis? It's hard to say. I mean, that's that's the way that it, it looks to be going, but it may take a very long time. Actually, the uh, the sort of new powers of these uh, local councils, uh, 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 you know, their autonomy from 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 central Tunis is going to be taking uh, place over uh, uh, three stages of nine years each. So so it's going to be over the next few decades that we're going to see a real autonomy. Um, but in terms of, uh, uh, you know, their actual powers, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, they just passed a law in the last few weeks before elections setting out what those new powers will be. So so it's hard to tell at this point just just how autonomous they will be. But that's the idea. Eventually, they'll be able to raise their own money to, to set their own tax rates and to, to really direct uh, development projects in a way that is more responsive to local needs. They won't be carrying out projects that were directed by uh, uh, Tunis Center or the parliament in, in, in Tunis, the capital. Um, you know, sometimes you see de- development projects that don't really make sense at all for people uh, uh, living far away from, from the country. People will say, you know, why? There was one famous case of, of tennis courts that were built and it ended up being a case of, of, of corruption when, in fact, the area needed hospitals and schools rather than tennis courts built. Fadil Alariza is an independent journalist and researcher who's been covering Tunisia since the 2011 Arab Spring Revolution. Today, we're focusing in on Tunisia, a North African country that saw historic elections on Sunday. Fadil, thank you so much for joining us via Skype. Thank you very much. Also, thanks to Connecticut resident Manji Dowdy for calling in. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. Coming up, we'll broaden the discussion to other countries that saw a revolution spark after the Arab Spring. Is democracy ideal for all places? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, Tunisians are learning the results of their first-ever municipal elections since the Arab Spring. The North African country sparked the movement in 2011, but not all of the countries swept up in revolution have been successful in achieving democracy. We wanted to learn more about the why. Joining me now in studio is Caroline Sayez, Associate Professor of Government and International Relations at Connecticut College, co-director of the Global Islamic Studies Program. And her new book, published last month, is Patriotic Ayatollahs, Nationalism and post-Saddam Iraq. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We were just talking about uh, Tunisia and what they have seen in their first uh, local elections on Sunday. But I wanted to just get some history and back up a little bit. When we talk about Tunisia, this was the country that sparked the movement, uh, the uh, the Arab Spring. Tell us what happened there. Yes. uh, So uh, 
just to sort of contextualize a bit, in 2011, uh, we as political scientists were not predicting widespread revolts or any youth movements. Uh, it was a period of stability in which most of the regimes in the uh, region um, had been ruling for decades. And so this really was uh, uh, unprecedented and unexpected. So the youth movement began uh, in Tunisia, just as we heard in the first part of your show, in which the youth took to the streets, uh, inspired by a Serbian movement, and used social media, Twitter, Facebook, and other means in order to gather uh, the population to the streets. And as you know, it quickly uh, caught uh, the attention of the Egyptians and many other um, groups in, in the region. So these are all countries that have that had been ruled for some time uh, by strongman rule, a dictator, very oppressive. Uh, so when we look at Tunisia, what's your reaction to elections that happened to represent the entire country and not just uh, Tunis? Well, I think the elections that we just saw in Tunisia um, were remarkable for a number of reasons. I think this idea, although voter turnout was low, and maybe not expected, um, this idea that we're moving from a centralized to a decentralized state structure in which if if you were following the news, you'd see that um, this one female, Suad Abdurrahman, was running for mayor of Tunis, which is pretty unprecedented. And she had a platform in which she was talking about getting soap in schools for children, um, building of, of um, a different kind of an in- infrastructure, daycare, a planting of trees. So we see a lot in terms of the local level um, coming to the forefront, uh, which is really uh, not something we've seen in the rest of the countries for a variety of reasons. So this is a historic moment insofar as Tunisia has always been called the anomaly, that it's moving in this trajectory despite protests earlier this uh, year, despite Uh, terrorist attacks in 2015, which could have derailed the process, we keep seeing these small grassroots steps, civil society organizations, the the role of the very important labor union in Tunisia, helping to usher democracy in the right path in that country. And it is an anomaly. We don't see the same things happening in the rest of the countries that experience revolts around the same time. Syria being uh, one of the more well-known examples of what happened uh, when uh, uh, youth went to the streets demanding change. Uh, what Can we talk a little bit about contrasting uh, Tunisia with other countries like Libya and Syria? Yes, um, absolutely. I think um, when we look at what happened after 2011, right? So in 2011, when the revolt happened, this was supposed to be the time in our literature in the academic literature where there had been only discussions about persistent authoritarianism. We only talked about why there is no democracy. So we were very surprised to see revolts take place in places like Libya and Syria because the literature had predicted that there was such a stronghold on society and these things would never happen. So what we got from 2011 and the revolts is the rise of ISIS in some areas. We have refugee crisis and civil wars. So if we were to sort of make a distinction of why Tunisia was a success case and the others were not, we might say that we were not expecting these regimes to hold on for life. So in the example of Syria, um, President Assad really did everything he could to stay in power. 
Whereas we see in Egypt, closely monitored by the United States, we were watching it unfold live and, and Hosni Mubarak was waiting for the communiques from the military and then stepping down when he got that phone call from the United States. And um, Assad did not. He did everything he could. Um, he invited regional sectarian support. He crushed people um, you know, in unprecedented ways. We have documented uh, at least 30 to 35 chemical attacks on civilians in Syria. So in other words, um, there was really there wasn't anything that was off the table when it came to holding on to power for the Syrian regime. And in that sense, what we've seen devolve into a civil war and a playground for um, Iran, for uh, um, Hezbollah, for external um, suppliers of weapons, it is really just now a a free-for-all, even though the regime was able to gain back control of the majority of the country, but it's never going to be the same way. And we won't really see civil society flourish in in this context. And when we were talking about Egypt, again, uh, Mubarak stepped down, uh, but it could be arguably that this is, um, the country is as, as oppressive, repressive as it was uh, back then. Can, can we talk a little bit more about um, some of the, the factions within that country that sure. still have power? Yeah. So uh, Egypt should have been on the same path as Tunisia, right? Because although Tunisia has had this long history um, of constitutionalism and moving towards the right um, types of reform in terms of education and, and other things, Egypt is no different. So in the late 1880s, Egypt also wanted its independence, had a revolt and was crushed. But they also formed a delegation in 1919 to move towards political party. Um, But because of outside interference, the British uh, throughout the 1950s and and so on, and we see the role of the US now, the Egyptians weren't able to democratize. With that said, 2011 was that historic moment in which the youth, the symbols, the slogans were very similar to those in Tunis, but something went wrong. And what essentially went wrong was that um, the military, it seems, refused to step down, even with a democratically elected president, um, Mohamed Morsi, coming to power, who is the um, candidate from the Muslim Brotherhood. So the military in Egypt, after 1979, the treaty with Israel, really uh, didn't have an offensive position, right? They became uh, farmers, they made cars, they produced things, they employed the population of Egypt. So it was very difficult in 2011 for the military, although they supported the protesters in the beginning, it was very difficult for them to step away from the process. So although Morsi in 2003 was uniquely unqualified, in other words, the the platform of the Muslim Brotherhood didn't prepare him for statehood, and he didn't compromise when he won uh, um, the majority of seats in parliament, but in essence, the military has been the largest problem in Egypt. So when Sisi um, uh, engaged in the coup in July of 2013 to remove Morsi from power, it was clear um, then that he would take this move towards crushing dissent, um, clinging to power, and it is really a military regime. And uh, certain things are happening in Egypt, extrajudicial killings, Uh, the banning of an independent media. Instead of building schools, he's built 16 jails. So he 
had his reelection just this past March, and a lot of people are now talking about whether or not he would remove term limits. So Egypt is really moving towards a you know uh, more robust military regime than even before. Caroline Sayez is associate professor of government and international relations, also co-director of the Global Islamic Studies Program at Connecticut College. Uh, this is where we live uh, today. We're looking in on Tunisia as it is moving towards and forward on democracy after the Arab Spring and getting some perspective of why uh, demo- democratic efforts have failed in other countries swept up in the revolution. Uh, you mentioned um, Iran, and I wanted to talk about the role of foreign intervention, this idea of, of proxy wars. Uh, going on and how that is something that Tunisia didn't have to worry about. Correct. I think the if if we could isolate one factor that explains the success or failure in 2011, I think it would be the role of regional and external actors, right? So Tunisia has this long history of being pretty much autonomous. So even when it was a protectorate from 1800s to 19, you know, uh, 50 Eight, maybe, I think when it gained independence, it did not, it was able to fly below the radar. In all these other cases, outside intervention was crucial. If you take Libya, for example, after the revolt, the country of Qatar was instrumental in funding rebels. $400 billion, having, um, uh, it has a military of only 11,000, but it was able to have such an influence in. Um, starting that rebellion in that country. Saudi Arabia is doing the same thing, right? So Saudi Arabia is, is crucial in uh, almost all of the other revolts. What, what, they, what they serve as are counter-revolutionaries. They are afraid of their own positions domestically, and so they are sort of waging war um, on the other countries in the region to make sure that people are crushed, uh, before we run out of time, Caroline, and we're talking again about Tunisia, uh, a very far distance from where we are here in Connecticut. Why should people care about what's happening in that region? This idea, again, of democracy sticking in some places but in not others. And is democracy ideal in each of these countries? Yeah, I think there's a saying that democracy is not perfect, but it's the sort of the best system we have. Uh, you know, it is interesting that when I was asking people yesterday, oh, do you know there are elections going on in Tunisia, most people, even uh, well-read people, didn't know. So I I think that um, we are very interested in countries that are serving our strategic interests. So we're focusing in the news on Saudi Arabia, um, on Iran, on other countries. But I think because the reputation or the stereotype about the region has always been that it's perpetually autocratic, that somehow religion and culture and the position of women um, have really um, prevented the region from democratizing, we could now turn to Tunisia and say, this is a Muslim-majority country, and really good things are happening on the grassroots level, on the national level. And um, although we are now in a position in which we are in utter state collapse for many countries in the region, I think it's only a matter of time before we see more revolts Um, And it's sort of our collective duty, I think, to look at this moment and say, um, how could we support this? 
again, uh, with Tunisia having these local elections, the Arab Spring was only seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, democracy takes time. It's not just a, a flip of a switch that uh, things get better for the people living in that country. I mean, what do you see in the, as the long term for uh, Tunisia now that these elections have happened, Caroline? Um, I think the prospects are uh, really good for Tunisia uh, because one of the um, big problems for most of the countries in the region today is that institutional politics are utterly dead, right? So in Egypt, we had a coup. The judiciary um, is discredited. But in Tunisia, the institutions are being built. They're, they've done, they're, they're um, uh, happening gradually, and they're being institutionalized. And I think that is important for the long-term um, prediction of whether or not democracy will hold in Tunisia. And it dates back to this long history from the 1800s, from um, right, the writing of the first constitution to the banning of slavery to the building of secular institutions. Tunisia has really been on a trajectory of, of state building and institution building for a long time. Uh, what do you think will happen uh, within the region? Uh, uh, Tunisia is wedged in between Algeria and Libya, which mm-hmm. has its uh, which has its own challenges. Is that something that Tunisia can uh, withstand? It's going to be difficult um, because Tunisia is a small country, right? Um, it has a population of 10 million people. But because Libya next door is quite unstable and there's a process of trying to get a unity government formed, Um, One of the big challenges in Libya has been the inability to control borders. So we know that at least 150,000 people a year are moving across the border. So this means jihadists and others. And so um, if somebody wants to um, uh, hijack, so to speak, democracy in Tunisia, one way would be to um, make the borders more and more insecure. So we'll have to stay tuned uh, to uh, that situation again. Uh, but I want to thank Caroline Sayej, Associate Professor of Government and International Relations at Connecticut College, also co-director of the Global Islamic Studies Program. Caroline, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, an update on the Hobby Lobby case involving thousands of artifacts being returned to Iraq. More after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Tuesday, North and South Korean leaders met last month in what was deemed a historic summit, spurring reports of a possible peace treaty between the fraught nations. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a closer look at this and other news out of the Korean Peninsula. What lies ahead for U.S.-Korea relations? Join the conversation. That's tomorrow. And now an update on a fascinating case involving a craft store and thousands of stolen ancient antiquities. Joining me now by phone is Leila Amina Dole. She's an art and cultural heritage attorney, also teaches art crime at NYU. And she served as a legal expert on cultural heritage to to the Eastern District of New York on the case against Hobby Lobby. Leila, welcome to where we live. Thank you. pleasure to be here this morning. So almost 4,000 looted artifacts were bought by Hobby Lobby, this craft store giant. Uh, and last year, uh, the federal government, uh, there was an agreement uh, that Hobby Lobby pay a fine for stealing um, or buying these stolen artifacts. Now these artifacts are being returned to the Iraqi government. Tell us a little bit about the backstory. What exactly are we talking about when we mention these artifacts? Well, what had happened is Hobby Lobby had purchased a 
thousands of artifacts of ancient Iraqi artifacts, mostly from the biblical era. And it seems like they knew what they were doing was wrong. Um, they had actually consulted with one of the cultural heritage, leading cultural heritage experts in 2010, uh, prior to the purchase of these objects, to get information about kind of the process of buying these objects and whether or not, I guess, they were authentic, whether or not they were stolen. And at the time, the cultural heritage expert, her name is Patty Gerstenblith, she did tell the company that objects that were taken from Iraq after the U.S. invasion in 2003, there's a strong likelihood that these objects had been looted. However, they ignored her advice and went forward with the purchase anyway. Um, and eventually they they um, got caught doing this, uh, especially after they had started importing these objects from the Middle East into the U.S. with false information on their customs forms. When we talk about these artifacts, can you describe what some of them were? Um, <clears throat> many of them were cuneiform tablets, cylinder seals. Uh, these objects were inscribed with cuneiform writing. Um, so some of these were just kind of like typical items, lists of um, purchases, prices of items that were being sold, just kind of like transactional tablets, but still so important for the archaeological record. These weren't necessarily, you know, aesthetically beautiful pieces, but objects that have a lot of important information for archaeologists, for historians, um, for individuals studying this era. Now, when we think about, again, this is a craft store, Hobby Lobby, uh, not in all states, but some people listening may have shopped at, at this particular uh, chain. Why are they buying artifacts? The owners of Hobby Lobby, the Greens, have a collection of art um, and artifacts. They had purchased thousands of objects over the years, not just these types of tablets, but also, you know, pieces of papyri, um, like scrolls. So they were collectors themselves. And although these objects weren't intended for the museum, the Green family and Hobby Lobby did begin a museum. The Museum of the Bible opened up in November. So supposedly these objects were not intended for the museum. I mean, I'm not sure whether or not that's true, uh, but that's what the claim was. Uh, but these are collectors who are very interested in biblical error objects, um, in Mesopotamian objects. So I think it's just a personal interest of the company's owners. Who are the people that are looting these artifacts and selling them on this market that were, they were able to get in the hands of this Hobby Lobby founder, David Green? So I'm not a criminologist, and I don't study the network, but I, I read a lot about the networks and about how looting occurs. And often it's locals on the ground, people who... Um, want money from these objects. And oftentimes the people selling these objects actually don't receive a ton of money. The people actually dig them. And then they'll dig them up, they'll sell them to a middleman, and then it might change, these pieces might change hands a few times until they end up on the international market. So I'm not sure who you know, the individuals in this case were who dug up these objects, but in many cases these are just poor locals who see these objects as, you know, natural resources. They're in the ground. I'm going to dig them up. I'm going to take them. I'm going to sell them for a small amount. And then they ended up being traded, and they finally end up in a larger collection, and someone may pay millions of dollars. In this case, the objects that were, were bought at the time, I think they were purchased for $1.6 million. I doubt that the actual individuals who found these objects 
saw anywhere near 1.6 million. Uh, Layla, when this uh, story broke last summer, uh, there was talk about how um, groups like ISIS uh, may be getting their hands on particular artifacts and then selling them. I mean, is that something that um, that is continuing today? Or when we look at the fact that since the, uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq back in 2003, a lot of these artifacts, thousands, were stolen back then? Well, there, it definitely is true that ISIS is behind some of the looting that's occurring in the Middle East. Um, we know this because ISIS gives these looters permits to remove the objects from within their territory. These looters pay a percentage. They pay like a tax on objects that they're finding and that they're selling. In this case, I don't think it was ISIS because these objects were purchased in 2010 before the rise of ISIS. But these objects could be connected to some other crime syndicate. It's uncertain whether or not that's true. Um, so I can't say for sure. And if, with these objects, if they were taken by a type of criminal crime syndicate or a terrorist organization, however, this region, the, the country of Iraq, has been heavily, heavily looted, particularly during conflict. And this is very common. Looting occurs during conflict. A lot of objects were coming out at, uh, out of Iraq after 2003. So chances are this is somewhat connected to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. This is where we live. On the phone with me, Leila Amina Dole. She's an art and cultural heritage attorney. As we talk about uh, the recent news that uh, thousands of uh, ancient artifacts uh, uh, taken from Iraq and purchased uh, uh, later by craft store giant Hobby Lobby, those artifacts have been returned to Iraq. Now, I was asking a lot about the, the history or timeline of these artifacts being stolen, Leila, because I'm curious uh, when we're looking at uh, things that are, are so old, how in the art world, in the museum world, uh, or even if you're a collector, how do you know what you're acquiring isn't something that was looted? It's difficult. It's it's tricky. The market is a, the art market and antiquities art uh, antiquities market are difficult places for people to to buy objects for a number of reasons. First off, besides looting, there are a lot of fakes on the market anyway. So there are a lot of forged goods, whether it's fine art or antiquities. So collectors need to be really mindful about authentication. They also need to be mindful about whether or not objects were looted. So what collectors should do, and what Hobby Lobby did do that was correct, is they should confer with experts in the field, cultural heritage experts, our experts, Hobby Lobby did that, and their expert told them, you probably shouldn't buy these because there's strong likelihood that these objects were looted. They just decided to ignore her advice. Um, but they actually did take the correct first step. So say the first step is to confer with experts. The second step is actually to listen to them and to not purchase these goods if you're warned about them. Uh, and that, that's the same for forgeries as well. There are experts out there uh, who help clients, who help collectors do their due diligence, which is looking into the authentication of an object, looking into the history of the object to see where it came from. Did these objects come from a conflict zone? Did they come from a, uh, a dealer that has a good reputation or a bad reputation? If this dealer is known to have worked with looted items, then you might want to be more cautious and you might want to refrain from purchasing an object from that person. So there's a lot of common sense. If you're looking at objects today coming from Syria, 
there's a red flag there. Syria is a conflict zone. You might want to be more cautious with those purchases and talk to experts. Ask for papers that accompany these objects. See if there are appropriate export permits from the country of origin. See what experts have said. Do the objects have documentation that shows that they were legally excavated, um, that they are being legally exported? In the case of Hobby Lobby, they also gave false information on the import documents. And um, there's a reason that that happened, that they weren't being truthful. So there are a lot of red flags that you can look for. That you can look for. Uh, you should deal with reputable dealers. Uh, if prices are depressed, if they're too low for the objects you're buying, that's another red flag. So there's a lot of common sense, and there are also a lot of experts to help collectors go through this process. Because the market, there are a lot of fake or looted items on the market. When you heard that these uh, items, again, thousands of these cuneiform uh, tablets and others, uh, these uh, artifacts stolen from Iraq being returned to Iraq uh, last week, were you surprised at how quickly that happened within a a year um, after the U.S. government and and Hobby Lobby came to an agreement? uh, There was a huge fine that was also paid. Yes, it was. Uh, Often it takes a long time for this process to go through, Um, in part because of political motivations, um, determining who should get these objects. Um, you know, we, the U.S. repatriates many objects to different countries, and this, the process sometimes takes a while depending on our relationship with that foreign government. So when the U.S. has repatriated objects to, let's say, the country of Iran, it's taken years because there aren't diplomatic channels for that, restitu- for that repatriation to take place. Um, with, this, with this case, it happened in less than 10 months, which is actually pretty fast. Um, And I think that's partly because this was such a huge case. It received so much press. And I think the the agents involved in this, the Eastern District of New York, I think they were a little anxious to get the works back to Iraq. I think it's really, uh, they're symbolic in the sense that it represents the relationship that we have with Iraq and how important it is for the U.S. to repatriate these items and for these objects to go home. And there was such an important collection of objects. There were thousands of objects. They were purchased by such a well-known company that had done something you know, illicitly, and it's, the, the facts around this case were very unusual. And so I think it was great that the U.S. was fast in returning these objects, um, and they really, I think, wanted to, to kind of make a to make this symbolic and to send a message that we are not accepting of looted objects coming into our country. It doesn't matter whether or not they're very wealthy collectors, but these objects should be returned home. Now, uh, there are areas of instability in Iraq. Uh, there, are, there is this, uh, uh, there are some out there that would wonder if uh, now that these artifacts are being returned, um, is it safe for these artifacts? Will they again be stolen? How would you answer that question? Hmm, that is that is difficult, um, but I, uh, the works are intended, according to an official at the Iraqi embassy, the works are intended to go on display at Iraq's National Museum. And that museum was actually heavily looted in 2003. There's a wonderful book written about the looting called Thieves of Baghdad. It was written by uh, a colonel, Matthew Bogdanos, who actually is a cultural heritage attorney. Well, he's an attorney in um, the Southern District of New York. He's in the Manhattan DA's office. And he devotes so much of his work to the restitution of cultural heritage, and he was involved with recovering objects that were looted from that museum in 2003. And that museum is going to reopen 
sometime in the very near future, and those objects that were looted and um, bought by Hobby Lobby are going to be returned to that museum. And so I think it is wonderful that this museum that had suffered such losses is going to have another wonderful collection of objects that were taken from Iraq. And it's a museum of the Iraqi people. It's it's their museum. It's their national museum. And to me, it seems like the rightful home rather than them being in a museum, let's say like the Museum of the Bible in the U.S., uh, and brought to the U.S. illegally, they should be brought home. And of course, there's always a risk in returning objects to an area that's unstable. Uh, but really, there are risks anywhere. There are museums in the U.S. that have suffered from thefts. So I think they're going to their rightful home. Uh, will they be able to be studied by scholars once they're, they're, they're inside uh, Iraq's National Museum again? Yes. I mean, there are scholars in Iraq who study these materials. Uh, I'm not sure about the international community and whether or not they'll have you know, access to these objects, if they will go, let's say, on loan, if they will be studied by international scholars. But I'm pretty certain that when they return to Iraq that, that at least the locals there will have an ability to, to have access to these objects. And then lastly, Layla, when you think about the significance of this case, what message do you think it sends uh, to collectors out there? Well, I think, you know, collectors should not be purchasing these objects. Hopefully they'll learn from this. They'll see, you know, if you get a warning, don't buy these objects. And even if you are a company that has a lot of clout, even if you're a company that's opening its own museum, it's still not right to buy these objects. And you, know, you had to, this company had to forfeit the objects that they spent $1.6 million on, and they also paid a $3 million fine. Uh, so it doesn't pay to have these objects. And also, in, in addition to all of that, we also have to remember that the company paid probably a lot of money for legal fees as well. So you know, it's not worth doing this. It's not worth purchasing these objects. And not only are you going to pay these fines, but there's also a lot of really negative press that surrounds a return like this. Uh, they knew they were doing something wrong, and they went ahead and did it anyway, and that doesn't say much for the company. So hopefully other collectors will realize this, whether or not they're companies that are collecting or private collectors. So hopefully it's a message not to do this. Layla Amina Dole is an art and cultural heritage attorney, also professor of art crime at NYU. Layla, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. Again, thanks for listening.